And again, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you again, worship ministry, for leading us today. Well, as you know, we are in the Advent season. As I shared with you last Sunday morning, we are bringing this conversation that's lasted an entire year to a conclusion where we are exploring our vocabulary, our theological vocabulary, our biblical vocabularies. We're looking at these various terms that begin with the prefixed re. And we've made our way through seven seasons already as a church. We're in that final season of Advent, and our theme is remember. And you might remember from last Sunday that that particular Hebrew word, zachar in Hebrew, which means to remember, it is used over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes when that word is used in the Hebrew Old Testament, though, it can have the idea of appropriate actions included with the act of remembering. So it is mental assent, if you will, where you recall something mentally, but sometimes it has the connotation that when you recall something, you engage in an appropriate action as a demonstration of that recollection. So, for example, as I shared with you last Sunday, the Bible says that God remembered Noah when Noah was in the ark. And then it says, and then he sent the wind to dry up the land. Also, from a human perspective, when the book of the law says we are to remember the Sabbath, then it goes on to say, and keep it holy. So the process of remembering is keeping it holy. So there's this connection, if you will, between remembering and engaging in some type of appropriate action. So with that said, uh, we are looking at Luke's gospel this year in the Advent season. Luke uses that word remember in his gospel. Now Luke wrote in Greek, not in Hebrew, but he does call to mind this, this Old Testament view of remembering. And so I've entitled the message today, God Remembered to Prepare the Way. And I want us to look at a story that's found on the very first page of Luke's gospel. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, we're going to look at Luke 1. And we'll begin in verse 5. And it's the custom of our church to stand and honor the Lord Jesus when the gospel is read. So I invite you to stand with me if you're able. Luke 1, verse 5, where Luke says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, 
and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. <clears throat> and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> This morning, I, I want to begin our conversation together by offering you a reflection on what I would call the meta-narrative. And I would tell you, we, we want to be cautious when we use that word, because in the field of academics, that word meta-narrative sometimes can be a, a, a lightning rod. The reason for that is that word has been used by some almost as a, a bully uh, in various generations past because if you adopt a certain meta-narrative and overlay it on your understanding of history, it can then justify certain behaviors. So for example, um, if you adopt the meta-narrative of white supremacy, if that's your understanding of reality, well then that justifies all manner of egregious activities. And that has been done historically. Sometimes a meta-narrative is adopted and then oppression takes place. So we'll use the word cautiously, but I wanna use it in, 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 in the real meaning of it in my opinion, and that is I would say the gospel is the meta-narrative. And by that I mean the big story. It is the big story. The overarching reality. As I read the Bible, the Bible to me portrays for us this incredible cosmic earthly drama where there are various intersections along the way, but there is something cosmic afoot. Philip Yancey refers to it as rumors of another world where he, he says, I'm watching what's happening in my world and there just seems to be something else at play, something, something bigger, something grander. Well, that's the biblical perspective. There's this grand story, this, this cosmic drama that's actually being lived out here in front of us. Now, there are several places in the scripture where I think that is taught. Um, so, for, for example, um, if you were to look at Galatians with me for just a second. Galatians chapter three. Let me just remind you 
Luke was famously connected to Paul. So when you're reading Luke's gospel and you think about the theology of Paul and his understanding of the gospel, just know that that's had an incredible impact upon Luke as an historian. Luke is a theologian as well. He's an evangelist. Obviously, he's written one of the gospels for us. But Luke has been influenced by Paul and Paul's understanding of Christology and history. So if, if you were to look back at Galatians 3, verse 7, Paul is explaining how universal the gospel is. And he says this, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Let me read that sentence again, or that last portion. Scripture, he says, foresaw God would justify the Gentiles and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's argument in Galatians is, don't be surprised that both Jews and Gentiles are justified the same way. Because that very gospel was actually announced to Abraham many years ago. So that's a reference back to Genesis 12, where God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the families, all the peoples of the world. So Luke has this perspective that there's this meta-narrative. In other words, the story of Jesus is not just this disconnected story. It's actually a part of the culmination of a piece of a much grander story. And so notice in Luke's, let's go back to Luke 1. Luke gives us some clues, <clears throat> excuse me, in his introduction. Um, he tells us in Luke 1 verse 1, he says, you know, many people have, have tried to do this. Many people have tried to draw up this account. And notice how he refers to the life of Jesus. He says, the things that have been fulfilled, accomplished, that have been brought to fruition among us. So his point is, is that the life of Jesus is actually a story of promise and fulfillment. It is a part of the big story. Luke understood that the prophets of Israel were given these unique signs. They were given this unique insight into the life of the Messiah. Luke wants you to know that when you read his gospel. He wants you to know that this is a big story. It's a, it's a grand sweeping narrative. And that the life of Jesus is connected to this story. In this whole context of promise and fulfillment. So he will take the prophecies of the Old Testament and connect them to Jesus and his ministry. Let me just show you a real plain example of that. Flip over a couple pages in Luke. Look at Luke 4, <clears throat> where Luke tells the story of Jesus going home. Okay? In Luke 4, look at verse 14. He says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Well, news about him, Luke says, spread everywhere. He was teaching their synagogues and Everybody was listening to him. Everybody was praising him. Everybody was amazed, Luke says. So, verse 16, then he went home. He went back to his home church where he learned RAs and Bible drill and sat in Sunday school and just did all the things a little Jewish boy would do in those days. But now he's grown up. He's, he's a grown man. He's, a, he's now an itinerant preacher. 
So he goes home to his home synagogue where he'd been brought up, Luke says, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, which of course he would do. Everybody did. It was his custom. He then stood up and read. Look at verse 17. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. So Jesus unrolls the scroll and he finds this passage. Once again, Luke is connecting us to the big story. So Jesus reads this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus, when he was on earth physically, the Jews had not heard from the Lord in 400 years. And so by the time you get to Jesus, the Jews were doing two things, the Jewish teachers, the rabbis, the leaders, On the one hand, they were looking behind at their history and they were celebrating the Exodus. They were grateful to God. There is a story in our past where God did something incredible. He delivered us from the Egyptians. The Jews also at that time were looking forward to a day when this was going to happen. Messiah was going to come. And so sometimes they would say things like this. Well, yeah, we're having to do this. We're having to do this, but when the Messiah comes going to be different. Well, yeah, we know we're having to pay these taxes, but when the Messiah comes, it's going to be different. So there was this incredible expectation of the Messiah and the messianic age and the deliverance that he would bring. And so in the midst of that seeming silence, if you will, from the Jews perspective, Jesus in his home synagogue reads this text, which everybody there knew it was about the Messiah. And then look at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down, signifying his authority as a teacher. He sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Well, yeah, because he has now sat down in the seat of authority, which means he has something authoritative to say. And what does he say? Verse 21, he says, man, isn't it going to be great when this happens? Isn't it going to be awesome, y'all? I mean, when he comes, what does Jesus say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that was radical. What is Luke doing? Luke is showing us Jesus fits into a much bigger story. And Jesus is making a bold claim. And some of the people, verse 22, some of them said, this is it. Some of the others said, mm, I had you in Sunday school. Seriously. <laughs> this is Joseph's boy. Remember? Mm-mm. No, we're looking for the Messiah. Well, what's Luke doing? Luke is showing us that Jesus full well understood. He's a part of the cosmic drama. He's a part of the meta narrative. Now, Here's what Luke is going to do. Luke's going to use language that shows us that he believes that the sovereign will of God is now on display in the life of Jesus. The life and ministry and the witness of Jesus is something that is going to be a fulfillment of prophecy and God has ordained it to be so. So Luke wants to make sure you know things that are happening to Jesus are not just happening. This is a part of a plan, God's plan. 
So the language that he uses, he, Luke wrote the book of Acts. So for example, in the book of Acts, Acts 2, verse 23, Peter's preaching a sermon and he says to the leaders of Israel, Jesus was handed over by you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. That's Acts 2, 23. In other words, you didn't just hand Jesus over to the Romans. You did that according to God's plan, whether you knew it or not, and his foreknowledge. As a matter of fact, later in Acts 4, when Peter and John are rescued and they come back to pray with, and worship with the church, in their prayer, they say to God, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the Jews, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's Acts 4, 28. In other words, these disciples said, here's what we just saw. We saw God's will already decided beforehand. It's what's taken place. Jesus will also reinforce that. In Luke 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this to them in verse 22. He says, the son of man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Dei in Greek, must be. In other words, there's a plan at work here and Luke is connecting us to that plan. The, the sweeping cosmic drama of the gospel overlays this entire narrative. It's promise and fulfillment. It's the wisdom of God. It's the old covenant and the new covenant, Luke 22. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1. In other words, what's happening right in front of us, y'all, is a big story, a meta-narrative. This is God's holy history, okay? Now, with that said, <clears throat> from a theological perspective, guess where God's holy history is played out? on a human stage. Now there's the mystery. God's sovereign will is being played out. This cosmic drama has been, is being played out on a human stage. So that means real people. I'm talking about just real people, like me and you, living their real lives, making real choices, are now engaging in the acts of the grand story. I want to make sure you know that that is what you are doing right now. You're not just living your little old life. That, that's not all you're doing. You're actually a part of something much grander than anything you would ever imagine on your own. If you're a follower of Jesus, you now have been written into this script and you are a part of this cosmic drama it's an incredible story. It is the story. It's the, it's the meta narrative. And it's just real people living their lives in the real world. One of my mentors in ministry is Paul Powell. Paul did not grow up in the church. His parents didn't attend church. They had nothing to do with the church. The only reason he ever went to a church is because he found out the church had a basketball team in his hometown, and he decided he wanted to play basketball. He went to church. You know what Paul said? He said it was an ordinary day <clears throat> in an ordinary church, in an ordinary sermon, preached by an ordinary preacher on an ordinary Sunday, God did something extraordinary in my life. You see, that's how it works. It's a human stage. Now, here's what happens though, y'all. Sometimes individual human beings are written in the script in such a way that they take center stage. Now, they don't know it when it happens. It's just what happens. 
and they get written in in the script according to God's will and they play a crucial central role. So, in this story, Zechariah. You remember the Hebrew word zakar? What does Zechariah mean? God remembers. Zechariah, God remembers. Elizabeth, one of my all-time favorite names. That was my mama's middle name, Elizabeth. God is my oath. God remembers. And God remembers is married to God's oath. Now, come on, y'all. <clears throat> and they're both priestly families. Both of these are preacher's kids. Zechariah and Elizabeth. They both come from the priestly line. They lived as faithful servants in the midst of both disappointment and exhilaration. Zechariah, Luke tells us, here's what happened. Let let me connect you to this big story. He says, I've I've studied, I've prepared these materials, I'm gonna present them in an orderly way. Herod was king of the Jews. Now, he wasn't king of the Jews because he was a son of David, he was an Edomian, which means he was a son of Esau. He was king of the Jews by the edict of the Romans. We all know, though, when we read Matthew's gospel, the real king of the Jews is about to take center stage. But Herod, he was king in those days, is what Luke tells us. He says, now there was a priest named Zechariah. God remembers. He was of the order of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests in the first century, about 18,000 of them. The eighth order, according to the law, was Abijah's uh, descendants. And so, there were so many priests, all of them had some time in Jerusalem, but by lot, every single priest, one time in his lifetime, would actually make his way into the inner sanctum to light the altar of incense. Once in a lifetime thing. So this is never gonna happen again. This is Zechariah's biggest day. Biggest day of his life. It'll be the only time that he'll ever be in that inner sanctum It'll be the only time he'll ever light the altar of incense. You think about it in in the Jewish temple, the incense served a purpose. First of all, it was obedience to God, offering a pleasing aroma to God. Served a practical purpose. A lot of dead animals were in the temple. And so the incense was used to offset the smell of the burning hide. But the priest was supposed to go in. He was to light this particular candle of incense, offer up a prayer, And then he would come back and there was a traditional blessing that the priest would pronounce over all the people who were standing outside waiting, anticipating these holy moments. So his entire ministry, he's planned for this day. Now, what do we know about Zechariah? We'll look back at verse six of Luke one. Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous. They were godly people. They obeyed the law. However, They lived with a great disappointment. The Bible tells us that in verse seven, they had no children. Now in their day, that was viewed as a sign of the lack of God's blessing. Now think about how difficult that was in that day. It's difficult in any day. But in that day, two people from priestly families, two godly people, with godly heritage, experiencing the blessing of God in their lives. But this one blessing was kept from them and it was incredibly disappointing. So 
this grand cosmic drama is being lived out on a very human stage. Can you identify at all with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever had in your mind how something was going to work out and it just didn't work out that way? And then you were left with it to somehow hold on to what's just happened. Not what you wanted, certainly not what you prayed for, and definitely not what you hoped for. And yet there you are, disappointed. Can you identify all of that? That's who these people were. Um, I came across this letter the other day. And I, I don't think I've ever shared it. Um, <clears throat> but it was written by Jenny Churchill. She had a son named Winston. He was a 15-year-old boy in school. And she wrote him this letter as a mom. June 12, 1890. Dear, dearest Winston, I have much to say to you. I'm afraid not of a pleasant nature. You know, darling, how I hate to find fault with you, but I can't help myself this time. Your report, which I enclose, as you will see, a very bad one. You work in such a fitful, inharmonious way that you are bound to come out last. Look at your place in the form. Your father and I both, your father and I are both more disappointed than we can say that you're not able to go up for your preliminary exam. I dare say you have a thousand excuses for your not doing so, but there the fact remains. Dearest Winston, you make me very unhappy. My only consolation is that your conduct is good and you are an affectionate son, but your work is an insult to your intelligence. If you'd only trace out a plan of action for yourself and carry it out and be determined to do so, I'm sure you could accomplish anything you wished. It is that thoughtlessness of yours which is your greatest enemy. I will say no more now, but Winston, you're old enough to see how serious this is to you and how the next year or two and the use you make of them will affect your whole life. Stop and think it out for yourself and take a good pull before it's too late. You know, dearest boy, I'll always be there to help you. Your loving but distressed mother. <clears throat> Woo, man, I don't know if you've ever been disappointed like that. <clears throat> Disappointment. How does it affect you? I can remember a time in my life where I prayed for God to intervene in my life in a certain way, and he just didn't do it. And a year passed, and another year passed, and I prayed the same prayer. And there, from my perspective, there was no intervention from God at all, and I was very disappointed. Well, how do you handle that when you're disappointed with God? How did Zechariah and Elizabeth handle it? The Bible says they were godly, faithful, righteous. They continued to obey God regardless. What a great example. Woven into the fabric of this grand tapestry of the meta-narrative is the story of a little couple just living out their normal life somewhere outside of Jerusalem, trying to figure it out and find their way, and it wasn't working for them. And God had not answered their prayers, and there they were. What, a, what an example. And then one day, 
on Zechariah's biggest day, his most monumental day. He'll have this on his resume for the rest of his ministry. Have you ever been to Jerusalem? Yeah, I have been. You ever been into the Holy of Holies? I have. Have you ever lit the candle of incense on the... I've done that. <laughs> this is his biggest day. And guess what happens? He is in that moment and Gabriel appears. Now, seriously, y'all. <laughs> the one thing he hadn't planned on was meeting an angel. And it scares him to death. And the angel says, quit being afraid. You're in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> You're in the very presence of God. That's where I live. And I'm here to give you a message. Your prayer has been answered. You are going to have a son. Now, Zechariah, here he is. This is a real person living his real life. And he receives this message. And he says, when you have this son, you name him John. And you dedicate him to the Lord. And he's going to live a holy and righteous life. He's never going to take part in some of the things that are very common in your world because he's been set apart for ministry. As a matter of fact, he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's not just any boy. This is the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah says, dude, I'm old. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I, my wife is old. How can this happen? Can you identify with Zechariah in that moment? The impossibility of something? How could this ever happen? You ever found yourself in that place where there's, there's just no way? There's no way. That's Zechariah. I can promise you I'm not going to point an accusing finger at Zechariah. I know how that moment feels. There's no way this will ever work out. There, this, this, this is so knotted up, nobody will ever be able to untie it. That's just how it is. And God sends Gabriel, and Gabriel says, hmm, I tell you what, I'm using words to give you this message. How about I just take all your words away from you? How about that? And that way you'll know. So you're gonna leave here as a priest wanting to brag to all of your friends, man, I've been in the whole, I, you're not gonna believe where I've been. I'm, here's what I'm gonna take from you, your ability to say anything. But I'm gonna give you something precious, a son. And so Zechariah comes out and there's all the people waiting on the blessing and Zechariah's like. And aren't you grateful these people thought he's had a vision. Something's happened to this man. And he makes his way home and then he and Elizabeth become like Abraham and Sarah. A miraculous birth. A promised son. This one will be John. Wow, what a, what a story, y'all. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were faithful to God in their disappointment. They were just as faithful in their exhilaration. What an example for me and you. Lest you and I be faithful when it's sad, and lest you and I be faithful when we're glad. That's the example of these two people. Just their story written in to this grand story. And then, we can't forget about John. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a boy here, right? Well, let me say this quickly about John the Baptist. He'd be invited to answer the unique call of God in his life because God's hand is on this young man. And now Luke doesn't even tell us anything yet, but, but the story's gonna have to continue because not only 
Does Zechariah and Elizabeth have to be faithful? John's got to be faithful. So John the Baptist now has got to live out this calling. He's got to decide that he will be this forerunner. He's got to agree with what God has for him. He's got to hear what his parents tell him. He's got to listen to that story of Zechariah who's going to tell him over and over, son, 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 listen to me, look at me, son. I was in the temple and an angel told me about you. Now this is your life. Live this well. John the Baptist had to choose that because that's how it works in this cosmic drama. The, the sovereign will of God and the, and the activity of human beings are somehow intersected in these holy moments. It's amazing to me how it all plays out. Well, as you contemplate that story, just think about it this week. I want to offer you one other thought. I, I didn't really know what to call it, so I'm just going to call it the grand human stage because I want to lift your eyes a little bit this morning. There's this cosmic drama, and then there's this, this human stage, but there's, there's just something else, and I'm going to call it, there's just this grand human stage where the force and the will of God is working in ways that you and I may not recognize. So during those 400 years of silence, what was God doing? Anything? Was God just whittling away the time? What was God doing? Well, I would submit to you as a theologian and as a historian, God was making ready. He was preparing this world for the birth of his son. That's what God was doing. If you go back to Malachi, here's the last word in our Old Testament. Now, the Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles, but this is the last prophetic word. And here's what Malachi says in Malachi 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the parents of their children, the hearts of the children of their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. I'm going to send to you the prophet Elijah, he says. Do you know that when the Jews celebrate Passover, there's always been a little bit of confusion according to the scribes about how many cups of wine are supposed to be there. I know it sounds interesting, but that's just the truth. But do you know that the normal Jewish celebration always has an extra cup of wine that's never tasted? Guess who it's for? Elijah, just in case. Just in case Elijah comes. <laughs> so there's that one cup of wine. When you celebrate the Passover, you leave it just in case. Crack the door so he can get in. Have his cup of wine ready because Elijah may come. And so what happens here? Well, what does Gabriel tell Zechariah? The voice of the one crying in the wilderness the one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, that's your boy. He's going to play a special role. And so Isaiah 40, Malachi 4, all converge in the life of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist will be that forerunner. In fact, Jesus will say, what'd you go out in the wilderness to see? He said, I'll tell you right now, there's nobody who's ever been born of a woman greater than this one. He said, the spirit of Elijah rests on him. Jesus connects him to this story. What, how did Paul put it? In Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. In other words, when the time was just right. So what was God doing? God was orchestrating, preparing, making ready. Think about what happened in the world those 400 years before Christ. 
Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. Y'all remember this, right, historically? And remember what Alexander the Great did? He Hellenized the ancient world. How Alexander the Great was convinced that the Hellenistic culture was superior to any other culture. That was his meta-narrative. And he said the Greek language was the most beautiful language that had ever been spoken. As a matter of fact, Alexander the Great and his followers, you know what they said about all other languages? If a person couldn't speak Greek, you know what they said? They said, you know what it sounds like? It sounds, it sounds barbarous. Guess what they called anybody who couldn't speak Greek? A barbarian. It's, it's barbarous. In other words, they're not, they're not a part of the meta-narrative. They're not a part of the big story. Well, the whole world is Hellenized. The next thing you know, the whole ancient world speaks the same language. And then the Romans take over the world and they, they modify this Greek city-state model into an empire. And they connect the whole ancient world. They build this massive transit system. All these roads that connect all the ancient world. They then decide to, to give Roman citizenship to people who never even came to Rome. You, you, you could live on the far outskirts of the empire and you could purchase your citizenship. And if you had Roman citizenship, then you could speak Greek and you could travel anywhere in the ancient world freely. You could make your way across the world. There was one government, if you will. There was one legislative system. The whole ancient world was brought together under one language ruled by one empire connected with incredible transportation. In other words, guess what the world was ripe for? The Messiah. Because the Lord Jesus comes, and in the midst of that moment, then the gospel is taken by these Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles, some of them Roman citizens, and they took it all over the ancient world. And by the time you get to Constantine, Christianity had taken over the Roman Empire. What was God doing for 400 years? He was getting the world ready for that. And when the time was just right, he sent his son. Now, I'll ask you one other question. What do you think he's doing right now? Think he's just biding his time? Do you think God's just chilling in heaven? Do you think God's just watching, scratching his head, thinking, man, how's all this gonna turn out? Is that your view of God? Let me tell you, if you don't know what God's doing right now, God's doing what he's always been doing. He's getting this world ready for what he's about to do. That's what God is doing. He got the world ready for the first advent of Jesus. He's getting the world ready for the second coming of Jesus. I'm telling you right now, don't you worry. God's not confused, not one second. God's not surprised by one decision. God is not befuddled by any piece of technology. God is so far ahead of us in eternity, it's a joke. And what's he doing? He's pulling his story to a conclusion. And when the fullness of time comes, Jesus will come again. In the meantime, you and I, we're to be the messengers of this grand story in our ordinary lives as ordinary people living in ordinary days, watching God do extraordinary things through us. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we wanna thank you for this big story, cosmic and grand as it is. And we wanna thank you for connecting us to it and allowing us to be a part of it. And we trust that you'll find us faithful to play our role to do what you've asked us to do in our moment every day. Having no idea, Lord, when an angelic presence may actually accompany our lives and speak directly to us in ways that we could never imagine. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll find us faithful just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Whether we're disappointed 
or whether we're rejoicing, we pray you'll find us godly people ready to be used by you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.